This is the Libertarian Podcast at the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard's the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. Now, this week, big news regarding Roe v. Wade. If you haven't heard yet, Politico published a not-yet-final draft of a Supreme Court opinion by Justice Alito that purports to overturn Roe v. Wade in a 5-4 decision. This is done through the Dobbs case, which we've discussed on this program before. Now, the court confirmed that it was a legitimate document, but stressed that it wasn't final. It was, in fact, a first draft from back in February. Now, Richard, there's a lot to talk about with with this leak, but one of the universal reactions so far has been to talk about what this leak does to the integrity of the court. What's so harmful about having the deliberations of such an important and controversial case made public? Well, generally, the Supreme Court has always had a rigorous vow of silence with respect to anything and everything that goes on within its chambers. And the explanation is in part from what you said. This is a preliminary draft. If this thing becomes public, then it means that any modifications that are going to take place going forward are going to be more difficult to achieve. It means they're going to be more political pressure that are going to be put on the justices of one kind or another. It probably is going to expose them to more abuse because now you're hoping to do is to change your vote rather than simply lamenting the fact that the votes have already been taken. It also creates an enormous aura of of distrust inside the court. Everybody knows that it's some kind of an inside job, whether it's a justice, which seems highly unlikely, a clerk, which seems sort of possible, whether it's some other kind of staff person who's involved, nobody will know. Uh, But what you're going to do is you're going to sit around and constantly look at everybody else and say, can I trust this person? Uh, It is not likely, I think, that you will see a repetition of this because the stakes in Roe generally in terms of political and moral terms are about as high as anything that the Supreme Court will do. Uh, But it's also then going to create a larger dialogue, which is going to be each person saying, well, there was somebody on the other side who did it for some kind of a nefarious motive. And what that does is it takes the debate and turns it from something about the merits of the case to something about a political cabal, however that may be organized. So there's no upside that's associated with this situation. And the only thing that we have to worry about now is how long is it going to take, if it's going to be done at all, before this thing is disclosed. And there will be another chapter of hell to pay, I think, once the person has been identified. I think whoever it is will certainly, if a clerk be forced off, I think there's a possibility the person would be disbarred for life, I think, perhaps, under these circumstances. If, God forbid, were a justice, people would start talking about resignations being required even though they can't be demanded, um, it would be it will be just an ugly type situation. And generally speaking, you don't get good deliberation against that kind of a background. So everybody, I think, says, look, if you had waited two months until the decisions were final, you could have had an argument about them on the merits. And the progressive outrage might have been every bit as strong and the conservative defense may have been every bit as great. But you wouldn't have this extra layer, which only makes things worse than they already are. A quick follow-up there, Richard. Is the leak illegal? I mean, Chief Justice Roberts referred this matter uh, to to the Supreme Court's uh, own, I guess, pseudo-enforcement mechanism. Uh, The FBI has not been referred to or involved, but I believe that they could look into this if they believed some sort of crime had been committed. Well, I think the answer has – the first answer and the conventional answer is that the leaker can certainly be punished for breach of fiduciary duty inside the organization. The usual sense after a case 
case called Bartnicki, which was decided some years ago, is that the person who receives the information, even if they know that the information has been stolen and been distributed illegally, is nonetheless going to be protected under the First Amendment. This is at variance with the usual rule about how it is that you treat stolen information. If this were a trade secret or something like that, a confidential doctrine, the general rule is if you got it and you knew that it was stolen, you have to keep it quiet. First Amendment exceptionalism tends to go in the opposite direction. What we don't know about the question is just exactly how this doctrine got out. And so suppose it turned out that it wasn't just a simple case of the political getting the doctrine being shipped by somebody inside the court, but what they had done is actively procured this kind of information from somebody, take it in the extreme case that paid some kind of a bribe, at that particular point, there might well be a shift in focus from inside the court to outside the court. Uh, Whether or not the person who leaked it is going to be subject to criminal sanctions, I think is going to be very, very dicey. Uh, But I think there'll be a whole host of civil sanctions that are going to be put into place. So uh, we have no idea what the particular facts are. Uh, People are very confident that they think they know what's going to happen. I think generally speaking, when it comes to questions of fact, truth is often stranger than fiction. And it's very difficult to try to specialize, speculate in advance about what's going to happen until you know the precise pattern by which the information was gotten out. So at present, I think the answer is it looks as though it's an internal disciplinary matter of the court. Politico seems to be in the clear. But as I said, Yogi Berra, if you remember, it ain't over until it's over. Let's talk about the merits of the case itself which tends to hinge on the rights or unenumerated rights uh, that have been read from the 14th Amendment. Now, in Alito's um, draft, he has this this discussion, this line about uh, an, an inescapable conclusion. The right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions, and therefore he goes on to say it's not a, an, an unenumerated right. Um, can you take us through this this discussion, this this history of, of interpretation of rights through the 14th yeah, Amendment, I mean, the, due process clause, and the rest of it? This is a kind of a complicated set of issues. Uh, the original decision in Roe, which was put into place and binds everybody, state governments, the federal government, for example, in the District of Columbia, uh, was an explication of what went on under some portion of the Constitution. It was not even clear at the time whether this was a 14th Amendment issue. No person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, this being a form of liberty, and due process being essentially a substantive test as to whether or not there's some justification for what the state did. Uh, the enumerated rights that you're referring to comes from a case called Griswold in Connecticut, decided in 1967, where Justice William O. Douglas famously said, uh, there are a lot of penumbras out there, and I don't know exactly where it is that we're going to find the right to purchase contraceptives as legates, at least if you're married. Uh, But as far as I'm concerned, we have that. He carried the day. And so then the question was whether or not the logic of uh, uh, Griswold, which had to do with the ability to have contraception, uh, carried over to Roe, which was the ability to uh, abort a child after conception had been created. It's a very large gap in the eyes of many people. And so many people said we're comfortable with Griswold, we're not comfortable with Roe. A second argument that cut in the same direction is Connecticut was surely an outlier. I think it was the only state in the union which had a ban on contraception. And what happened is it was just put into line with everybody else. Uh, Contraception was widely used in Connecticut in any event. So it wasn't a big deal on the ground. 
The abortion decision, of course, was exactly the opposite. Abortions were illegal in one form or another in every state of the union, typically by statute, sometimes by common law. The sanctions varied widely. And then all of a sudden, an opinion by Harry Blackman comes along and said, all these statutes to be thrown out. And this was not a question of casual acquiescence on the part of everybody else. There was an instantaneous uh, war that started to erupt between those people who thought that Roe was wrong morally and legal and those people who were prepared to protect it both ways. So in this particular opinion, what he does is he spends a great deal of time trying to explain why it is that the underpinnings uh, for Roe v. Wade are simply not there. And the test that he uses is one that is sort of traditional, which says, is this part of the tradition of our peoples from the beginning of time going forward? And there's certainly things like the right to be heard and the right to marry, which fall into that particular kind of category. And he says, this just isn't that case. Because if you look at the history, it's been contested from one end of the century to the next. Uh, You could actually go back to Roman times and get a debate about this. Medieval times on quickening, Blackstone discusses it. Uh, So by the time you get to uh, uh, the passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868, every state has got some kind of a ban. He says, how could you say that it's part of the tradition when, in fact, it was legal at the time that this thing was done? People will say that the Constitution evolved. Well, it hadn't evolved in terms of the practice on the ground because it was still illegal pretty much everywhere. So he says, if you look at this, it's a very sloppy opinion. And indeed, it is a very sloppy opinion. I can say I'm one of the very few people I know who was around that, well, wrote, I wrote an article on the case back in 1972, 1973, when I just joined the University of Chicago. And it struck me and most of my colleagues at the time that this was a constitutional anomaly of the first order, uh, because you couldn't figure out where it came from or where it was going to go. There was further criticism of the fact that somehow or other the Constitution divided fetal life into trimesters, having a rule of total immunity in the first trimester, some regulation in the second, and then powerful regulation by the state once the fetus is sort of recognizable as a human being waiting to emerge from the womb. And people said, where did you get that from? There's then a case called Casey in 1992, which kind of backs off of that in favor of an undue burden test. Justice Alito is very scathing about the way in which this particular test works. And he says, if you put the whole thing together, it turns out that there's no constitutional background, there's no textual background, there's no structural background. It's just wrong in every dimension. And as far as he's concerned, one of the key features that you worry about in upsetting an opinion or an established precedent is the stronger the logic. As far as he's concerned, the more resistant it is to being overturned uh, years later. And he then compared this case to something like Plessy v. Ferguson, which was overturned 58 years after the whole thing had started, 1896 to 1954. And so he went this way. Well, the tricky thing to understand here, and we can talk about it if you want, he just gets rid of this. And then the next thing he does, and he doesn't say, well, what can the state do? He says it's up to the states to decide. And so he says it's now a federalism case. Individuals because states could decide what they want to do. He makes it appear as though there's no federal power over abortion, but there is already in the Congress and in the works a comprehensive legislation by Senator Schumer, which is designed to protect and extend the rights of Roe through legislation far broader than anything had previously done in the court. Uh, so we don't even know whether this is a state issue the way it was before 1968. It may well become a federal issue as well. And so hold on to your hats as you watch the way in which this thing starts to play out, assuming that the five-member majority holds to its current course.
Richard, many pro-choice supporters believe that overturning Roe would chip away at what's been called the right to privacy and the more modern rights that have been granted by the Supreme Court in the last few decades, things like gay marriage uh, bans and contraceptives, uh, even interracial marriage. Um, do you think that this is going to lead to reversals on the on those issues? I think that's almost irresponsible, almost hypocritical to make those kinds of statements. Justice Alito, he wrote a very tempered, mild-mannered opinion, and he made it perfectly clear to anybody who cared to read it that he thought that abortion was a unique quote-unquote issue because it involved human life or the potential to create human life. None of these other decisions, he said, involved that, and he signaled very broadly that he was not going to change anything having to do with those cases. It's also, I think, very different politically. Roe has never had a comfortable place in the American psyche. Uh, the way in which it was put to me is as follows. Uh, there are two-thirds of the people in the United States that think that um, abortion is immoral, and there are two-thirds of the people in the United States who think that uh, essentially what happens is it should be legal, which means there's one-third of the population in the United States that thinks it should be both legal on the one hand and immoral on the other, and then you get two groups at the polls who are going both ways. If you start looking at any of the other issues. Uh, the political support for contraceptives are well over 90%. Uh, for gay marriage at this point, the transformation in your lifetime as well as my lifetime has been utterly amazing. Uh, when I first started to work about this issue in the early 1990s, people said, Richard, uh, you're doing this at the University of Chicago. You remember the committee of the council. If you were to speak out in favor of recognizing gay marriage inside your deliberation, it would be an enormous boost for the issue. And people started to think, oh, my God, there might be some serious political risk that you would take by coming out in its favor. Well, this is then, and that was now. And today, I don't know a single person who has the slightest inclination to move in the opposite direction. I mean, my favorite anecdote about this is you see many people taking two positions simultaneously. One is I don't think there's any constitutional right. And two, I will pay for the gay wedding or the same-sex wedding uh, of my children or my stepchildren or my nieces, aunts, and uncles, or whatever. I don't think there's any contradiction for that. And so what's going to happen is he wrote it as a one-off. It was meant as a one-off. I think this is a lot of the scaremongering that's going to take place. I think if you even go back and you look at about Donald Trump and uh, trying to find something that was sort of anti-gay epithets coming out of him, the answer is you couldn't find anything whatsoever. This is so embedded in American life uh, that it would be impossible for anybody to try to do it. There would be a constitutional revolution of the first order if somebody wanted to go back on it, because as I just mentioned, and I'll say it again, people who don't think that Obergefell was rightly decided when it decided to recognize gay marriages have not the slightest wish whatsoever to either overturn the decision on hand or to get a constitutional amendment or to do anything about it. So abortion is unique, and I think that has generally been the case. Think of what happened when Obergefell came down. There are a lot of people who were kind of upset about this, but they were all people upset about it for its constitutional pedigree. There were very few people who were upset about this because what they wanted to do was to return to the bad old days on this particular subject. Um, as I've said, uh, if you're talking about gay marriage, it's a libertarian moment. 
Uh, because what it does is it says two people are now free to get together and the state can't sort of imagine some external harm that comes from this union. And so we're going to protect it. Uh, there are going to be some people who are worried about the long-term stability of the population. If it turns out everybody wanted to have a gay marriage, would you be able to replenish the public at large? But nobody thinks that that's an issue worth talking about in terms of the current set of practices that we have. And so I think the best thing that one should do is to say up or down on rope. Uh, I would like to see the people who are opposed to it explain why they thought it was not extraordinarily bad reasoning. But it seems to me that there are only two arguments that are being made, none of which go to the merits. One of them is it will spread. And the other is it's an established president of 49 years and counting. Uh, and that itself is the thing that uh, our friend Alito tried to address. Most of his opinions devoted to that issue. If you want, there are some other real conceptual difficulties associated with his opinion. Um, but the sorts of objections that are raised by the mass of people in the United States have little or nothing to do with what Alito said or with anybody amongst the conservative majority wants. Well, let's talk about the majority. The Senate Majority Leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, has vowed to hold another vote on establishing uh, a right to abortion through all nine months in all states. And this would be, you know, of course, through the federal level. So if Democrats voted tomorrow to pass federal legislation that made abortions legal, well, my question to you, Richard, is, is that legal? Um, I think of, of states usually as, as having constitutional right to, to public health. And then say that doesn't happen. What, what does the next 10 years look like for states in the fight over abortion? Well, I mean, if you look at the opinion, they make it pretty clear that they think we're going back to what it was before uh, Roe was decided in 1973, that it becomes exclusively a state matter. The serious deliberations that are beginning to take place are what happens if abortion is legal in one state but not legal in another state. And I can recall back in 1969, there was a case called Cosgrove and um uh, oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, Cosgrove and something or other else, but there's two people. And the question was whether or not the woman could get an abortion outside of New Jersey. Gleitman was her name, could get an abortion in New York. And there was a nice conflict of law question. And sure enough, there will be people who try to say that, well, we may be able to punish her when she comes back. Or more importantly, they say if the physician inside a given state that regards abortion as illegal makes a recommendation that the woman get an abortion somewhere somewhere else, that he or she could be held responsible uh, for inducing an abortion which took place extraterritorially. Uh, whether this is constitutional, it is completely virgin territory at this particular point in time. Speech rights, uh, aiding and abetting, if it's something is criminal, is something you have to worry about. Extraterritoriality is one of the most difficult issues in the face of the globe that we have to deal with. My hope is, of course, that we could avoid all these issues by not passing such a statute. Uh, I think, in fact, the problem with the Schumer statute is I don't know of anybody who seriously thinks that abortion should take place to a baby who's already come to term. I mean, that strikes me so utterly bizarre and so totally crazy uh, that there you are, the baby's at the head of the birth canal, it's not out, and somebody says, let's kill the kid. Um, seven pounds, four ounces. It's not going to happen. I don't even know why he did it. It's also a bill, if you read it, he starts somehow or other tying abortion to white supremacy, white with a small W as opposed to black oppression with a capital B. Uh, so there's just a huge racial element that he's introducing into this matter, which I don't think has to be there. Uh, a discussion over that bill would be completely counterproductive. If it turns out that he wanted to do something federally, uh, which said 
hereby say that we now take Roe v. Wade and whatever it does is in fact now protected by federal legislation, uh, that would be a much more difficult case to deal with. In places like New York and other states, there's already legislation either on the books or about to be on the books, um, which says if Roe is overruled, we make it state law to do it this way. You'll probably get a minority of states that will do that, but probably contain a majority of the population. You will then have this blue and red map which will create certain uncertainties. So uh, my own view about this is that Justice Alito is a little bit too optimistic. I think before Roe was decided, letting each state go its own way was something that was pretty easy to do because it wasn't an issue that was of consummate portion at either the state or the federal level. But now that you're trying to go back to 1972, it may be that conceptually you're there, but politically the landscape is so utterly different that the kinds of activities you're going to see now would never have been thought of by anybody before ever you believe that Roe was in fact a constitutional issue. And so I think the level of unsettled behavior that we're going to see is going to be fairly large in this kind of case. And given the fact that there are strong differences of opinion as you move from red to blue states on this kind of an issue, it could be that the tensions will become quite ugly. Um, Justice Alito is very much an above-the-clouds kind of guy. He says, I just do what I think is right constitutionally, and the politics will have to take care of itself. But if he thinks that the politics are going to be autonomous decisions in each of the 50 states separately, and that nobody's going to have to worry about bumping across one state to another, I think that's going to be a mistake. And I think that even if the Schumer bill never sees the light of day, some other legislation at the federal level will, because as Schumer says, is this is commerce amongst the several states. And after we did the health care bill and decided it wasn't commerce, uh, this case, we're going to decide it's going to be commerce. I mean, I have no doubt that the regulation of an abortion network throughout the United States, if you can regulate the wages that are going to be paid in a fine and dime store in Roanoke, Massachusetts, or wherever that place happens to be, then you can certainly regulate at the federal level the abortion. There's then going to be a battle over the preemption of state police power. There's a lot to worry about under this situation. So we'll be back doing other shows when this one is done, uh, because this is act one, scene one of a new drama, and this is probably going to be a five-act play, which will be of Shakespearean dimensions. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, on Defining Ideas over at hoover.org. If you enjoyed our conversation, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.